Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone and I am coming to you live from sunny, sunny Sydney, Australia and Macquarie University. And I am here with Ben Chappell. Now, Ben is a professor of American studies at the University of Kansas, and he's also the author of a really great uh, book that I had the opportunity to read this past week called Mexican-American Fast Pitch, Identity at Play in Vernacular Sports. It's out from Stanford University Press in 2021. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, Ben, I I love the book. I I didn't know much, I have to admit, about um, Mexican-American Fast Pitch. It's kind of regional and even transnational connections. And so this book was just fascinating for me. And I'm wondering, we were kind of chatting before um, before the talk that we're both originally from Ohio, uh, but I'm wondering how, how, how an Ohio guy like yourself got interested in Mexican-American fast pitch in, in the Plain States and in Texas. Well, you know, if I had stayed in Ohio, I could have easily gotten interested in fast pitch. One of the uh, um, real stalwart... Um, uh, teams for men's fast pitch is from, I, I believe it's Ashland, Ohio, Ohio battery. Um, but I didn't know that much, uh, about the sport. Um, I kind of had a brush with the, uh, the tournament that is sort of the focal point. One of the focal points of the book, the tournament in Newton, Kansas, um, which has been running, it's going on 75 years now, uh, as a Mexican American fast pitch tournament. I heard about it a little bit when I was an undergrad because I had gone to study at Bethel College, which is in North Newton, Kansas. Um, and so that, you know, just knowing that that was something that happened in the community, uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot of background. Or I didn't have a whole lot of context for it uh, because I wasn't really doing Mexican-American studies at that time. I was studying um, music primarily, studied to be a music teacher, but I decided I needed uh 
some more education to address some of the questions I had about sort of like, um, you know, how different aesthetic forms are valued in society and, and cultural politics and things like that. Um, so I sort of was uh, grasping around for the fields and, and graduate programs. And I, and I landed at the university of Texas very serendipitously. Um, and that got me into Mexican American studies. So, uh, I started out, um, with my, my major research project was an ethnography of low rider car style and spent uh, quite a bit of time on that. That was my first book. Um, but, uh, while I was doing that work, which was, it was uh, community-based ethnography, of how, uh, you know, popular aesthetic forms mattered within the Mexican American community, um, in Austin where I was studying. Um, I happen I noticed that in the same neighborhoods that, uh, fast pitch had, uh, a presence. I saw, um, murals in the neighborhood that, w- that, uh, featured specific players and teams. Um, so there was a really strong sort of public cultural memory about fast pitch. I, and I saw people playing, uh, in, in the park. Uh, where uh, in the in the area of Austin of East Austin where I was doing my work, so I had this uh, this um, understanding in the back of my mind uh, that Mexican American fast pitch was a thing that existed, but um, it wasn't until I had uh, sort of wrapped up my lowrider work and um, landed in Kansas uh, at the University of Kansas, and I was sort of trying to think about what should the next project be. Um, and the Mexican American fast pitch sort of phenomenon was just, uh, was sitting there. I thought, well, let me just do a little work on this and see where it goes. Um, and that turned into, you know, uh, about, a, about a 10 year engagement, um, with a lot of summers, a lot of travel between Texas and Kansas. Um, and it became the book. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, it, you're the decade that you spent, like it was clear in the book just how much um, of that ethnographic work that you had done. And so I wonder if a little bit you can, I kind of, you know, I'm tempted to go two ways because the first is, I think, uh, for an international audience, most of our audience, I think, are Americans would be somewhat familiar. But I think for people around the world, fast pitch, you know, might be useful to talk a little bit about that. But maybe you want to tell us first, since you since you mentioned it, a little bit more about your method. Like, how did you how did you employ ethnography to get to know more about this really particular local and kind of regional um, thing? Because it's not just you're not looking at fast pitch; you're looking at Mexican American fast pitch in a in a very specific place. Yeah, well, um, that's that's a good uh, starting point to talk about the specificity of, of what you're looking at and the specificity of the context, both uh, historically, geographically, um, well, and socially as well. So I think that that's a, 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 a I think that method is a matter of priorities. Uh, research methods about making priority decisions. And so uh, prioritizing a contextualized view is is the starting point, as I say. But um, I was trained in anthropology; that was my uh, graduate uh, uh, field, and sort of the so-called classic ethnographic study involves a very long time spent in a in a single place, um, really digging deep and trying to get to know a specific community um, in as much of an interactive and embodied sort of participatory way as you can. Um, 
but for this project, I kind of made a different choice. And yeah, that's not to say that, you know, I invented every, anything. Um, people have been doing multi-sided uh, work for a long time in lots of different forms. Um, but the basic method for the kind of multi-sided ethnography um, that I was doing was to follow uh, the focal point. And in this case, it was follow, sort of follow fast pitch uh, within uh, a, a designated area that would sort of try to keep it um uh, feasible, but I wasn't digging super deep in any particular place so much as I was going between the places to try to get a sense of the network and the community that, that was created among different cities, among different communities within cities, uh, throughout a whole kind of region where people were playing this sport. So, um, the, the field work involved going to tournaments. Um, the tournaments were sort of the drawing points, uh, and I went to tournaments in Kansas City and in Newton, Kansas. As I said, that's the oldest. Um, also, I went to one in, in uh, Topeka, Kansas, um, but then also in Austin and San Antonio and Houston, Texas. Um, so, like I say, it was a choice to rather, I mean, I could have probably done a project, and I hope somebody does do more projects that was really specifically rooted in one specific place. Um, that's very doable because the, uh, you know, the communities that, um, that sort of cultivate Mexican American fast pitch as their tradition have been doing it for a long time. And there's lots of family involved. There are lots of, uh, you know, community social relations based on, um, where you grew up, where you lived, where you played, where you went to school, where you worked, um, and so there was just an abundant amount of, of material uh, to go into in each of the places I visited. But I decided to kind of go between them because I was interested in the work that uh, these tournaments do to kind of create social bonds and, and really give um, a setting for people to be together and form you know, uh, a community. I keep coming back to the word community, <laughs> uh, which I unpack a little bit in the book because it is not an unproblematic word, but, you know, it's really um, a group of people that have something in common and the things that they had in common, um, you know, that, that I was sort of chasing down here was a, a lot of experience at these uh, softball tournaments. Yeah, I, I have to admit, like, when I started reading the book, um you know, in, in the cover, and I love the cover of the book, but in the cover, it says Mexican American fast pitch, and all the letters are bolded and big. And I, and at first I was thinking it was going to be, you know, Mexican American fast pitch. And then I realized actually all the words are equally important because you're not talking about, this isn't about all Mexicans. It's actually, as you say about this, um, you know, not about all Mexicans, not about all Mexican Americans and not, not it's, it's about Mexican Americans who play f- fast pitch and they, that community was often at tension with other Mexican American groups, like thinking about, you know, they're fighting over the use of space. Is this going to be a soccer pitch or a baseball, di- you know, a softball diamond? Um, so it was really a really kind of like, actually, I, I was surprised in the reading of it in a good way. Like I was like, oh, yes. It, it was that kind of local in, in a way. And so I did, that raised a question for me and one that you, you address in the book really well, I think, which is, um, I guess it's kind of a two-parter, but you know, what, for those people who don't know what it is, what is fast pitch? And could you, could you tell this story with some other sport or is fast pitch special as a sport? 
Yeah. Well, um, so fast pitch uh, is a style of, uh, of softball, or, or, you know, you could get technical and call it a discipline of softball. Softball being a scaled down version of baseball. So it's, it's like baseball. It's played on a smaller field. Um, it's played with a fewer number of innings. Uh, the game uh, in, in a lot of, uh, a lot of rule sets, the game has a time limit. So um so that's softball, but but uh, softball has lots of different versions. I, I guess this is one of the things that characterizes softball as a sport is that it's just been adapted to so many different contexts and so many different um, uh, people's needs. Um, but fast pitch is the style that uh, is that that the the people who are into it sort of consider to be the original softball game because. Um, unlike, uh, well, there's, there's actually a game called slow pitch, right. And, uh, um, unlike some of the other, uh, versions, um, in fast pitch, you can throw the ball as hard as you want. You can throw it as fast as you want. And the, you know, you sort of are, the pitcher is sort of trying to strike out the batter, just like in baseball. Um, so fast pitch is a very old, uh, uh, version of softball and uh, very competitive, very fast paced, uh, and it's very physical, uh, sport, um, I guess one of the things that is most interesting about softball to me is that because it is, because it requires less land, less ground than baseball and, uh, you know, players don't have to run quite as far there, you know, it can fit into an urban park or like a, the backyard of a church or something like that. Softball has a long history of being promoted as a playground game, as a as a game for uh, recreation and communities and things like that. Um, and so, you know, going back to uh, the time of the new deal, there were uh, a ton of softball fields built all over the country to try to promote recreation. So there's, it's got this pedagogical kind of uh, um, uh, history of, of, of being a social intervention. And this is also why you see softball being promoted, uh, you know, at, at places like, um, uh, majority minority neighborhoods or, you know, industrial towns where the, that are very blue collar, where people are, are working very hard. And so they might, uh, you know, uh, somebody who owns a factory might have said, well, let's give them a, a softball field to blow off steam on the weekend or whatever. So there is a sort of a specific history to the sport in that way. It's got a specific social history. Um, and I guess with the Mexican-American uh, version of fast pitch, what interested me about this is, um, yeah, I love what you said about the title because it is sort of like, uh, overlapping circles. It's sort of like a Venn diagram. Uh, we've got, you know, people of Mexican descent who are in the United States who are playing softball. And that's sort of a, you know, there's a cross section of all of those things that comes together. Um, and you know, it, it definitely, a lot of the, a lot of the arguments that I make and a lot of the, uh, things that I learned doing the project could be made about other sports. For example, a lot of the people in Mexican-American communities in the United States who played softball um, also played basketball. Some of the same people played on basketball teams, some of the same clubs. The uh, The Jokers Athletic Club um, in Austin, which is a very pivotal sort of uh, softball team in East Austin, was also a, ba- uh, a basketball team. And at the same rec center uh, in a different season, some of the same people play basketball. So um, I think there is something specific about the sport that that made it available in certain social settings and certain contexts. Um, but at the same time, some of the things that I was learning about how 
physical activity and competition matters to people and matters to communities and becomes a resource for those communities. Uh, you could say about not only other sports, but you could say it about all kinds of, uh, uh, of different activities that are, you know, aesthetic or that are in some way, uh, you know, not entirely necessary for life, <laughs> a little extra. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I, I have to say, I was totally convinced about the kind of specificity. I, the ba- basketball brings up an interesting comparison, but I was totally, uh, I was totally, uh, I totally bought in. I was totally convinced by the specificity of softball as this place that was a site for this contestation of what you call cultural citizenship, a way for these communities to kind of battle out what it meant to be Mexican American in the first place. So I, I want, I, I guess for me, that was kind of the center beating heart of the book was, you know, what is it, what is cultural citizenship and how these ideas change over time? Am I getting it or am I missing the mark? <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, that's a very uh, important concept for me. And, and that, that speaks to the kind of uh, scholarship that, um, that I was trained in and that this book is, I, I aimed for this book to be a part of. Um, and that's a specific sort of uh, stream of Mexican-American uh, ethnography and cultural studies, which is concerned with how um, aesthetic forms and cultural forms um, really are ways of producing identity and uh, ways of producing, um, you know, to use uh, Stuart Hall's term, to producing certain articulations between uh, personal and community experience and sort of larger forms of belonging, uh, such as citizenship. So the term cultural citizenship, the way that I use it, comes from Renato Rosaldo, and it refers to this kind of dynamic where you have uh, in a society that is uh, stratified like the United States and that has also been sort of formed through migration and through these uh, various kinds of uh, relationships um, to other places and to to various uh, uh, scales of identification, um, cultural citizenship is uh, a sort of a stance whereby people say, yes, uh, we are going to claim sort of the franchise. We're going to claim belonging to this society. And at the same time, we're going to claim the right to be different from what you expect of us or to, to sort of uh, have some autonomy over self-definition, uh, over uh, who we are and how we're going to live our lives. And so in the Mexican-American experience, this has been you know, really crucial because um, the history of people of Mexican descent in the United States um, has involved a lot of exclusion, a lot of uh, disenfranchisement going back to the very beginning um, and continuing as people migrate between countries. And so to um, to live in the United States and say, yes, I'm an American. I, you know, I demand uh, the vote. I demand equal treatment. I, you know, we demand all of these things, but at the same time, you're not going to tell me that I can't be Mexican uh, as I'm belonging here because Mexican is not just a national identity. It's, you know, it's a, uh, it, it's a whole kind of a bundle of commitments and attachments. Uh, and so, you know, uh, cultural citizenship, if we're talking about it as a kind of uh, category of activity, or if we're talking about it as something that's at stake in um, vernacular practices like playing sports, um, it becomes a, a kind of a negotiation and uh, trying to find a way to just uh, be who you feel you are uh, without any kind of negative consequences for it. So, you know, that's I, this is, uh, I think, a really helpful way to understand and talk about 
things like uh, if you come from a community that was segregated, where you know it's a if it's a, a, a subjected historically to the, the forces and the processes that have been called barrioization, where um, the people of Mexican descent were sort of enclave together in one part of a city and sent to one school and kept to you know one playground or what have you then you start to play ball in those places then uh it, uh cultural citizenship becomes a factor in um or it's it's at work when people say you know yeah i'm gonna uh, not try to hide where we're from here this is uh you know uh we're gonna be proud of our neighborhood we're gonna be proud of our community and we're gonna actually go try to compete beyond uh the spaces that we've been relegated to stay in um and so it's it's I think once you start paying attention, it becomes very easy to see how sports can do that kind of work or sports can be a, a, a venue for that kind of work. For people who haven't uh, read the book, you have kind of, from from my reading of it, the two chapters that follow your introduction are very his, are very historically uh, rooted. And so if you're, if you're thinking, oh, this sounds great, but I don't know much about me- the experience of Mexican Americans in the in the in the plain states, uh, you get that. But I wonder, uh, Ben, it, it these two chapters: Mexican questions and Hecho on America in America con Mexican parts, which I love the title of that chapter. Um, I was wondering, Ben, if you could you, you just because you brought it up um, in in a kind of oblique way there, if you could tell us a little bit about what what was the you know what were the kind of social economic cultural factors that allowed for the creation of these specific or maybe allowed is a strange word um, that created these specific Mexican-American communities in the, in the plain States in the early part of the 20th century. Sure. Sure. Well, it's a, it's a big story. And actually, you know, um, besides everything we've talked about so far, definitely one of my goals for the book was, was, um, was to sort of make sure that, uh, uh, that readers who didn't initially know understood that there are these very long-standing Mexican-American communities um, in the Midwest, in places like Kansas City and Newton, Kansas, and and going down into Austin as well. But uh, you know, it's it's um, people are familiar with uh, large Mexican descent uh, communities in the borderlands but they don't always know sort of how far the borderlands extends into the United States. But yeah, the, uh, the big thing in the, in the Midwest, uh, and that's, I'm referring to Kansas as that, as part of that region. Um, there were a lot of, uh, Mexican workers recruited to come and build the railroad and to work on the railroad. And, uh, you know, there was, um, it's a, it's a complicated history just, just because, um, like, migration today, there are always kind of contradictory uh, legal, social, and economic uh, uh, push and pull factors. Um, and so, for example, you know, at certain points in history, it, it was illegal for American companies to try to recruit labor from Mexico, and yet they found a way to do it. Um, and so the, the sort of uh, background for the specific communities that I was looking at that, that tended to uh, play fast pitch was that in the between the 1910s 1920 to 1920 this is sort of the revolutionary period in Mexico a lot of people left the country and would come to places like El Paso Texas and um, uh, and uh, railroad companies that uh, were looking for 
looking for track workers uh, would actually go to El Paso and say, you know, um, we've got work for you. Come with us and um, and, and basically settle whole uh, little communities in towns like Newton, Kansas, which was a very pivotal uh, uh, railroad juncture for the at the time called the Santa Fe system. Um, Burlington North, Northern and Santa Fe is what you see on the signs now. Um, so these were communities that were founded together where when a whole uh, group of workers kind of settled there at the same time. And and then in some cases, their families came or their families came later. But there was an interest uh, on the part of the company to, um, to sort of keep people there because uh, turnover was not good. Um, and so in a lot of uh, communities in Kansas, for example, um, the railroad actually built houses for people, um, or donated land for certain kinds of, for like a church or something like that. Uh, and in some places they donated land for ball fields. So there's this very kind of close connection between working for the railroad and, um, these, uh, the life of these Mexican American communities, um, throughout the Midwest. Now that's, you know, uh, like everything else in history, that can be ambivalent because, you know, on one hand, uh, work is an opportunity and it's, you know, a chance to um, build a better life for yourself and your family, et cetera. Um, it also can be sort of like, um, uh, it, it can be a restriction. It can be a labor segmentation effect. And so, you know, there were definitely um, people who had the experience of sort of being made to feel um Railroad work is where you belong. Don't try to do anything else. Don't try to, you know, uh, go and study. Don't try to enter the professions or what have you. Um, and so actually, I didn't spend a ton of time on this in the book, but there, throughout the the kind of world of Mexican-American fast pitch, um, there are a lot of people who come from that sort of uh, labor migration. That was their personal history. Um, and they played ball and there was, they were part of these community building efforts over generations. And then, you know, um, would, they would go to study, they would become, uh, lawyers and accountants. And so in some ways, the class character of the, of the communities changed over a couple of generations. Um, but that was one of the other things that interested me about fast pitch, uh, Mexican American fast pitch as a kind of cultural space is that um, besides the sport itself, besides, and, and the sport itself is very important. Everybody who was involved wanted to play hard. They wanted to win. They wanted to get better. But these events, these Mexican, these traditionally Mexican-American fast pitch tournaments were also opportunities for kind of collective remembering and, and rekindling people's connections to their roots. And so if you had a, a, a tournament that's based in a railroad uh, community. And, you know, over the generations, their kids, you know, maybe joined the military, maybe went to college, spread out all over the place. A lot of them would come home for the tournament and it would be a, a real focal point for sort of reminding people of where they came from and uh, what their shared history is. Yeah, I, um, I, uh, and I think this is probably the time to actually turn to the Newton tournament and kind of tell us a little bit about that. But I, I want to emphasize like, one of the kind of one of the um, tensions in, in the book that you highlight really well is this tension between exclusion and belonging and between accommodation and resistance. It's always a little bit one and, and the other working at the same time. And so it's never a kind of uncomplicated uh, question in terms of, of 
the use of sport as a way to promote a, a certain kind of cultural citizenship. But yeah, well, you, let me can I can I, can yeah, I say yeah, one please, more thing please. about before we go on from yeah. that, Keith? I also want to emphasize because uh, you know because not everybody probably is aware of the level of discrimination that Mexicans have experienced in the United States. Um, one important thing that comes out when you look at the history of sports is that sport is often uh, sort of an expression of community identity. And so that has been a real, uh, uh, it's been a tool of discrimination historically at certain times when, for example, um, you know, uh, all the uh, players on a high school team, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, anything, at a certain point in history, you would expect them to be white because they were representatives of the community. And even as the community changed, whether it's through migration or just, you know, whether it was through, uh, desegregation and people getting access to schools that they didn't have before, uh, you would still see this uh, resistance in some communities uh, to kind of allowing the sports teams to be as diverse as the actual uh, as the actual community was. And so um, this is one of the things that the early generations of uh, Mexican-American fast pitch players faced where they might not have been uh, as welcome in Little League or in high school baseball. Um, and so they felt like they had to create something for themselves. They had to create their own opportunities to play and build their own teams or what have you. Sometimes, you know, there would be a Mexican-American team that would be allowed, let's say, to play in the city softball league, which is kind of a, you know, adult recreation type of thing. And so that, that would be a very important opportunity for people who had been excluded from sort of the official sports schools, the sort of community, or I'm sorry, sport school teams, school sports is what I meant to say, the sort of community pride spaces, they might be allowed to play on, you know, like a weekend playground team. And so that you can imagine that that sort of gave an added motivation for people to say, okay, they didn't want me on the school baseball team, but I'm going to show them that I can really play uh, in this, in this opportunity that's afforded to me. So that, that's, uh, you know, going, we're going back to like the 1930s, 40s, 50s uh, with that particular story. Um, But that relationship, that sort of dichotomy between being included, being welcome, being excluded and being, you know, outright rejected from some of these sports spaces and opportunities that's a theme that runs throughout this history well and in some ways it's the only way it's one of the only ways to understand some of the later tensions in these turn in these tournaments too with open play uh or not but so tell us a little bit about newton i mean the newton uh, tournament's been around for quite a long time how long has it been around why did they start it can you tell us a little bit about it yeah, sure. That well, the Newton team. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. The Newton tournament is a really uh, special event. It's remarkable. I mean, Newton, Kansas. I, I think the last time I checked, has about sixteen thousand people. It's a small town. Um, it's got a significant uh, Mexican American population that dates from the sort of nineteen uh, uh, teens to twenties uh, railroad migration. Um, you know, several generations have grown up in Newton. Um, and it was one of these places where there was, uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, segregation of everyday life that the people who grew up there tell me about. And so um, some of the railroad workers who moved to Newton to work for uh, for the railroad uh, were already excited about baseball and they and they played baseball and they they, you know, played within the family and amongst within the neighborhood and so on organized teams. 
Um, but what happened was that softball became really, really popular in the um, sort of late 1930s, moving into the 1940s. And so the way that I've kind of uh, the way that I've kind of narrated this, which I think checks out, is that around the time that the first generation of Mexican-Americans in that community who were born in the United States were coming of age. Okay, so their parents came in the 1920s, let's say, and then they were um, you know, coming into adulthood in the, in the 30s and 40s. At that time, softball was just like a huge deal. And even a small town like Newton would have a very extensive city league. It, you know, the games would be written up in the papers all the time. Um, a lot of places there was equipment available in the parks. So it didn't have the same kind of investment uh, required to participate as we are familiar with recreational sports now. So there's sort of some serendipity that went along with that. But uh, at any case, around that time in the um, around World War II, so early 40s uh, and moving into the late 40s, um, the uh, the Mexican-American community in Newton was playing ball and they were doing really well. And some uh, one of the earliest sort of uh, um, versions of of the uh, uh, of the team that that community produced was um, affiliated with the church. Um, and so the, uh, um, people who all went to the same church who belonged to the same sort of mutual aid society would play ball together and then they would enter tournaments, they would enter leagues. And at, at a certain point around, it was actually around the war, um, uh, in a lot of communities, uh, that shared this history, um, the Mexican team started to organize their own tournaments and it, you know, they might've started out as a weekend thing with, you know, three or four teams from different uh, cities that would get together. Um, and that's what happened in Newton. And it started out, uh, I mean, there, there are various versions we're getting into, you know, you said it's historical, but um, my training is also in folklore. And so there, <laughs> there, some of this is shrouded in legend uh, because people remember it different ways, but, you know, um, uh it's definitely it's definitely the case that hosting the tournament raised money for the church for the Catholic Church and um, raised money for their efforts to actually build a church as opposed to just a sort of temporary chapel or a smaller scale chapel, um, and uh, they just kept doing it. So the the uh, the Newton tournament is I think next year is their seventy fifth uh, annual, and so that counts back to right after World War II. Um, I should say that you know, another part of the specificity of fast pitch is that it's very popular in the military or has been. A lot of people play fast pitch softball in the military. And of course, a lot of people who were sort of first generation American citizens at the time of World War II also went into the military. And so there's that's another part of the overlapping Venn diagram. Um, but some of those veterans who came back to their who came back home um really put their energy into, into developing this, uh, this tournament for, uh, teams from Mexican American communities. And it, it grew, um, over the years. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure exactly when the peak was, but, uh, certainly, um, when they hit the 50 year mark, uh, in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties, they were drawing quite a lot of teams. Um, and, uh, there was a period of decline for a while. In fact, when I was starting to do my work, most of the people who I talked to would tell me men's fast pitch is a dying sport, which is you know a whole other theme that we need to go into. That that the tournaments that I've been talking about this whole time um, were 
you know, this, these were men playing fast pitch softball, whereas in the kind of mainstream of fast pitch softball in the United States, uh, it's mostly women who play it, and there are specific historical reasons for that. Um, but uh, the, the Mexican tournament has endured every year, uh, 4th of July weekend, they're still playing. And the last couple of years, they've started to draw uh, some of the teams from Texas and from Oklahoma. So they're coming from a, a, a pretty good distance and the numbers are, are, are getting back up again. But, but uh, the thing that really makes the Newton tournament distinct today is that that tournament still has on the books that it's for Mexican-Americans. It's for people of Mexican descent. And uh, each team is allowed to have a a couple of players who are not uh, of Mexican descent. Um, But at least on paper, you're supposed to bring your birth certificate to show that you have uh, that ancestry. So that that's actually a vestige from those uh, earlier times I was talking about when when de facto segregation was you know ubiquitous, and when there were um, you know so many places where Mexican Americans either couldn't play or did not feel comfortable playing, they really wanted this tournament to be for their own community for themselves, and so they started the tradition uh, you know saying this is for us. And over the years, they've maintained that. Most of the other tournaments that I'm aware of that started as these uh, designated ethnic tournaments within a specific community have opened up since then because um, they just felt the need to uh, to include more, more people from more different backgrounds. Um, but Newton has maintained that uh, identity is. So you could say it's the last Mexican-American tournament if you want, but uh, there, are certainly, uh, there are certainly a lot of tournaments that are rooted in that tradition. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, brings up a lot of questions because on one hand, I mean, one of the things that the book does really well is talks about that this isn't, although Newton features, obviously, um, this isn't just Newton, that there's actually lots of tournaments, the Latin, et cetera, it's all over, and that these teams are traveling sometimes shorter distances, sometimes longer distances um, to, to compete in them. And uh, so there's this real circulation of people, not just the players themselves, but the, the fans, their families, supporters. Um, and so that raises the question of what, what do you see at the tournament? What's it like? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> you, you, your, your book is really evocative and kind of made me hungry. Um, <laughs> well, there's no good, there's no good Mexican food in Australia, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, to hear it. No, 
Yeah, it's one of the worst things. But then also, I mean, you because you bring it up, maybe we should just uh, check the, you know, to talk briefly about this, this politics of opening up, because that's one of the major uh, themes in the kind of later years of these tournaments and the complications of opening up. So what, why did some, why does Latin open up and Newton not, for example, is there, what's, what's the story and, and, and is there uniformity? I mean, I'm, I'm asking one of those rhetorical questions we ask our students, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what's the debate within the Mexican American, uh, fast pitch community about opening up? What are the benefits and costs? Well, let me just first um, pay a little homage here because I think that the the complexity of that question and the and and the complexity of all that goes around, goes on around those questions is really part of the richness of ethnography um, because you know the kind of work that I that I did for the book I was trying to really understand what this phenomenon was but the more I got into it the more I realized it's not just one thing and there's you know it's certainly not uh, an experience that you can totally generalize uh, among all the people involved in it so um, and this is something that I learned from you know some of my mentors who also did work in Mexican American communities. Uh, Richard Flores was my mentor. Jose Limon, uh, Doug Foley. These were all ethnographers who worked in communities very much like where I did. And and Doug Foley, in fact, uh, worked on sports in, uh, in in communities like I did. Um, and you know what I learned from them was that you can't think of a cultural phenomenon like a an ethnically designated sports tradition as this hermetic a kind of unity. You can't think of it as something where everything is, uh, where everyone is uh, homogenous and everything is proceeds by consensus. Um, the answer to the question about why open up or, or whether to open up is debated probably every day in every place that fast pitch is played. Um, and there, so, so the question about why open up really comes down to who's on the planning committee for that particular tournament. And it comes down to what do they think is going to be, uh, the best, uh, the best route forward to, um, to keep the tournament going and to, and to grow the tournament. Now for Newton, there's a very strong, a very high value placed on tradition and uh, a sense that what they're trying to do by, by running the tournament each year, part of what they're doing is they're, they're trying to carry forward something that their grandfathers began. And this, this uh, idea of an inheritance or a heritage from the, from the past generations that has to be sort of protected uh, makes it a very traditional tournament. Um, and there is enough kind of, uh, I don't know, there's kind of a, uh, some gravitas around that tournament in the area. So all the Mexican-American communities in the area are aware of the tournament and they know that they can go there and play if they want to get a team together. Uh, so that kind of works. But, uh, you know, Houston is a different place. The Latin, which you uh, refer to, is the second oldest tournament that I know of. Now, um, it was founded by the uh, Rusk Athletic Club in Houston, which is a very different setting because it's, you know, this huge metropolitan city. Um, and it has, it has a Mexican American fast pitch tradition that is rooted in a specific, com- well, a couple of specific communities uh, that were barrio communities where Mexican American people, you know, both, uh, you know, created a community, but also were kind of uh, enclosed or restricted to at a certain point in history. Um 
But, you know, it's part of this big metropolis and there's a lot more softball going on besides the Mexican-American tradition. Um, and so at a certain point, I guess the organizers of the Latin uh, decided that they needed to open up in order to attract enough teams to keep it competitive, in order to um, uh, to grow the tournament. And in fact, uh, it became quite an international affair with uh, you know teams coming from Mexico regularly, but also... Um, teams in the United States recruiting players from Latin America and from elsewhere. In fact, uh, uh, I, I did see a picture from Australia in, um, in the Latin competing in the Latin one year. <laughs> so, um, you know, the question I think for people who organize this kind of event is always about how much are we going to kind of invest in uh, invest? I mean, energy and time and prestige, how much are we going to invest in, our connection to our past and where we came from and trying to keep things the same and how much are we going to try to expand, grow, become something else. Um, and it's never either, or, I mean, this is kind of the really intriguing thing I think about community-based sports. It's always, uh, there's always a dialectic there or at least, uh, some, you know, cross fertilization. So, uh, one of the examples of this actually is, is, um, one of the, the really respected teams uh, in this tradition are the San Antonio Glowworm uh, team, the Glowworms, uh, which comes out of a very strong community base. They ran their own tournament for 50 years. It was very rooted in the community. It's very rooted in uh, the Mexican-American experience in San Antonio, which had a lot of pretty, uh, pretty fierce uh, segregation and discrimination in that history. Um, and the Glowworms, uh, you know, that's a that's a team that's in, I guess it's this third generation now in terms of who's running it, um, really uh, developed as a family team, as I say, rooted in a particular community. But now they're 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 using that common history and that kind of the cultivation of that specific context as a launching point. And this year they they competed in the world tournament. Um, they were kind of a, uh, a surprise, a, a sleeper uh, team in the world tournament because they went to it unranked um, in terms of general. We're not talking about Mexican-American fast pitch only now. We're talking about fast pitch, men's fast pitch in general. Um, and they started winning games. And so there was a little bit of a write up about, you know, who is this? Who is this team from San Antonio? Um, you know, I'm, I don't know how many people at that at the world tournament of uh, fast pitch softball. Uh, we're aware of the Mexican-American tradition that the glowworms kind of came out of, but they managed to use that uh, that background and the deep roots that they have with the sport to, um, you know, reach out beyond um, their specific community and, uh, and and compete on the international level. One of the things, I mean, that you that you do well in the book, and I would point to the chapters, ballplayers in barrio life and men and women in gender fast pitch is you really also talk about the way in which the specific illusio of, of fast pitch at certain practices and appeals to people were both local and kind of more uh, were, were framed from larger points of view too. So I, could, I wonder if you can talk a little bit, cause I do, you, you brought it up earlier and I think maybe for a lot of American uh, listeners, when they think about fast pitch, they think about women's, fast pitch. Uh, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about both men and, and women in these Mexican American communities, how they were using fast pitch as a kind of response to their own community, as well as a response to racial uh, prejudice or to racism 
Um, so I'm, 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 I love those chapters for the way in which they kind of showed uh, a certain mass, you know, the way in which fast pitch allowed for a certain kind of masculinity, especially among pitchers, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Alonzo Doors. But uh, then the chapter on women too was really great. And so, I, thanks. I appreciate the yeah. I appreciate that. And um, I think that what we're talking about, uh, I, I guess the general category of what you're raising here has to do with uh, a kind of, um, subjectivity and, and sports in a lot of ways. And, uh, and I think it's really important, um, for understanding what's going on with this specific, uh, with this specific sport to understand the, how normative baseball is in, in U.S. culture. Yeah. And, and it's funny because like when I, you know, I've been doing this project for a long time and whenever I would present or, you know, talk about what I was doing, a lot of times people would hear it as, oh, you do work on Mexican-American baseball. And, uh, and that's not it because baseball is different. Um, and the way that's one of the ways that it's different is that softball is sort of situated as less than baseball it's not quite as serious it's not quite as important uh, i'm speaking now from the perspective of sort of you know what what you might imagine um if the american if the uh, major leagues were a character in a story they might be saying <laughs> you know oh softball yeah that's cute you can go do that well you know this is the the idea that softball was less formal uh less serious uh more fun not work, <laughs> you know, all of those kind of cultural associations were why softball was promoted so much in marginalized communities. Partially. It was like, uh, it, it's like an, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's like a consolation. It's yeah. like, you know, you're, yeah. okay. You know, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to play for the city team, uh, in baseball, but you can have softball. And this is exactly the experience of how, uh, baseball was, was aggressively gendered, um, you know, f for men, because women have competed very well in baseball from early on and girls have always played baseball, according to, you know, some of the historians who have sort of, uh, dug into this, but, uh, you know, the gender boundaries around baseball were sort of enclosed at a certain point when, um, uh, you, for example, when, when the question of whether girls can play in little league, uh, came up and, uh, the answer, uh, for gendering baseball was, okay, girls can have softball. Uh, boys can play baseball and girls can have softball. And that's a cultural kind of normative uh, structure that uh, still exists today. In fact, it exists on the international level. Um, when the, uh, the Olympics uh, in, uh, in Japan, they, uh, you know, baseball and softball are kind of in and out of the Olympics, depending on where, uh, you know, <laughs> where it's hosted. So, but I, as I understand it, the, the plan, the most recent plan was to let baseball come back for men and softball come back for women. And so you have all these men who play softball who are like, what, we don't get to go to the Olympics. And you have women who play baseball who are saying the same thing. We don't get to go to the Olympics. So this is a, it's a very fraught gendered field to begin with, but because softball was kind of this less, um, less normative, less kind of, uh, a central, uh, cultural, uh, sports space because of that um, women sort of had access to softball and could thrive there. And there's um, I, I talk about this, some of the literature uh, in, in my book uh, uh, there's been some very, very good work done on this to explain why um, 
uh, why softball has become mostly a woman's sport in the United States. Um, but that marginalization from kind of the main, uh, uh, the main event is something that the working class Mexican American communities and women in general kind of shared, uh, in, you know, vis-a-vis baseball. And so this idea of softball being a, uh, an opportunity for people who maybe didn't, uh, uh, didn't have access to the most uh, heavily invested, the most uh, remunerative, the most celebrated sports, playing something that's a little bit more alternative or playing in this kind of alternative space. Uh, that's the theme that, um, you know, that I really latched onto. Now, the thing that's a little bit problematic about it, um, and this is something that I did, certainly did not solve in my book, is that, you know, um, sports in general has a very uh, gendered kind of cultural resonance in the United States. Um, and so when I say that women were allowed to play softball, uh, that's certainly, you know, true to an extent, but it's not to say that women have always been encouraged to be athletes uh, anywhere close to as much as men. And so, you know, the fact that the traditions that I was looking at of these Mexican American tournaments were mostly men's tournaments and mostly men's teams reflects that gendered history. But I became interested in how, uh, I mean, I met a lot of women who were involved in the tournaments and I was interested in how their experience, uh, kind of entered into this dichotomy between, you know, this is something that our people do, that our community does. This is something that we do for our neighborhood. And on the other hand, this is something that we can pick up and take and run with, and it'll take us someplace. And the, the examples that I found of that just by going to tournaments, I mean, there's probably, there's, there's a ton more to discover in local archives and in people's oral histories and so on. What I was able to discover going to the tournaments was that because women's softball has become actually a really important, uh, a really important form of organized sport, team sports. And so you, to the extent that you have division one university scholarships and every now and then you have, you have professional play as an opportunity, um, there, there are women who grew up in Mexican American communities who used sort of their fathers and grandfathers experience as a, as a basis for moving into that mainstream of fast pitch softball. And that I found really intriguing. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that was kind of a feature of doing this work at the time I did it was that a lot of people who were in the game a long time, uh, passed away in the course of my work. Um, but one of them was, uh, Louis Awayo, who I write about in the book, who is a very well-known and beloved uh, pitching coach. So here's somebody who came up through the Mexican-American fast pitch tradition, you know, played in the days of segregation, played in these uh, designated Mexican-American tournaments and, um, you know, had the kind of, he kind of developed as an athlete and as a scholar really of softball from that experience. And then in later in his life, he started really, uh, he started coaching girls and how to pitch. And, um, you know, for, uh, a, a young woman who's athletic, who wants to, you know, play her sport as long as she can and take it as far as she can, you know, competing for a university scholarship in softball is actually a pretty, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's one of the ways to go. That's a pretty favored path. Um, so I was really intrigued to find out about uh, the, uh, a few cases 
which uh, people made that happen. Yeah, I, one of the one of the things I haven't really brought up in my questions is just how much this story is kind of like a family story too. Um, hmm. People's name. I mean, you 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 bring it up, um, but certain family names appear again and again, and it's clear that the communities themselves are really um, tightly knit in some ways. Um, yeah. And your, your last chapter deals a little bit with, with that kind of like ext- extreme particularities and the, 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 through this issue of kind of um, what you call utopian form. So I'm wondering if you can, um, just walk us through that quickly in your last chapter, because that I think for readers is in some ways your most theoretical chapter where you're trying to kind of both, both go well, from my reading, both go deep in and also out at the same time. Like is, is it a model? Is it particular? And can it be both at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that uh, that uh, theoretical kind of um, problem I was working with, and I mean problem in sort of a generative way, <laughs> you know, not in a bad way, just a, a problem in, as a as a space for thinking, um, was about what's the relationship between utopia and ideology, for one thing, and that. Uh, you know, that's a very specific usage of both terms to make that distinction. But the distinction that was useful for me was to think about ideology as a kind of uh, a structure that that proclaimed universal meaning, um, as opposed to uh, utopia, which constructed a, a, a kind of meaning that was um, that that had value based on its contrast with the way the world actually was. This is the sense of utopia as the good place and the no place, right? Utopia is something that uh, that doesn't exist. Um, and so, you know, the the tension between these two concepts is interesting when we talk about sports because the cultural meaning of sports is always something that people, you know, uh, try to articulate to actual life. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, yeah, it's hard to know how to how to begin on this because you know I've been thinking about it for so long, but but you know, it's right there in front of you. If you start to look at it, that sports is like the, a sport and a game. These are like little uh, encapsulated experiences of reality, right? There's a start and an end when the game's over, it's over. And there's a, you know, there's a field with boundary lines and what happens in the game is on the field. And then when you step over the line, you're off the field. And so I was trying to understand like, what is, what's going on with that? Like, what is that? cultural performance what is that pageantry that that goes on when we play games and when we play sports um the the ideological answer would be that what we're doing is we're sort of like expressing values or we're embodying sort of cultural narratives in a pedagogical way to say you know this is what's important this is how we should live our lives this is you know uh what the what the world uh, this is what the world is like. And this is what you get into when you hear people talk about the life lessons that sports teach. You know, you hear about, well, you know, builds character. You have to learn to work. You have to learn to sacrifice. You know, you have to uh, you have to be a team player. So there are all these normative values that um, sports have been uh, that have been attributed to sports and sports have been um, sort of celebrated as promoting these values. 
Um, but that also then bleeds very uh, easily into patriotism. You know, uh, baseball very famously followed U.S. colonialism and sort of uh, became a, a kind of pageant of U.S. Uh, supremacy in certain parts of the world. So then the question becomes, well, so what does it mean for people to join something like that, to take part in that kind of cultural activity, but at the same time to assert difference? So that's where the that dynamic of cultural citizenship comes in again. You know, what does it mean that you're playing a very highly ideal, ideological and normative sport, but you're saying, and guess what? You know, I'm not who you might expect, but I'm from this community you know, um, uh, this is my family, this is my name, and we do things our own way. So that uh, that assertion of difference in relation to uh, a, a very heavily normative uh, cultural activity was interesting to me. And the reason that I started to think about it as utopian was because um, something like meritocracy, and this is one of the themes that I do take up in the book, right? Uh, meritocracy is sort of like an ideological theme in the United States, right? Um, but meritocracy is certainly not something that is universally experienced. Or, you know, certainly when you look into um, the racialized history of, of certain communities, meritocracy was sort of never came through for everybody. <laughs> uh, or I should say it didn't always come through for everybody. So, you know, what do you do with that experience? And what do you, how do you become a part of a society that proclaims itself a meritocracy when you feel like you never get a fair chance at anything? Um, and I think that one of the, th- one of the answers that the, that sports provide is, well, you, you create, maybe you create meritocracy in this very small scale bounded space that you have access to. And so you can say, well, maybe I didn't get a fair sh- shake at work. Maybe my teachers never uh, appreciated my potential at school. Maybe the coaches in sort of the official in school teams never saw my potential or never gave me a chance. But in my community, on our team, I'm going to have a chance. I'm going to take it and I'm going to show you what I can do with it. So in that way, uh, I do think that sports has a utopian, uh, sport has a utopian sort of dynamic sometimes. Uh, especially when it's sort of expressing the, uh, a contrast between what's going on in the field and, and as sort of like the way things should be, as opposed to what real life is actually like. Now, when you talk about family getting into that, I guess that's, you know, it's interesting because I, to call something utopian is, is also tricky. And I, and I don't, I didn't want to say that that softball is actually utopian in the sense of being a perfect social arrangement. It sort of expresses utopian uh, hopes or it, ex- it expresses utopian kinds of uh, energy sometimes. Um, but it's just like families, right? Like, uh, you know, a family relationship is not a perfect relationship. Uh, fam- families are fraught. Families are, you know, constructed in all kinds of ways that can be incredibly harmful. Um, and, uh, you know, not everybody in the family gets a, gets a, a, a fair shake. Um, but I think that in these specific communities where people um, have a history of not being treated fairly and of not, of, of, you know, being deprived of a lot of things that would make their lives good. A family was often a resource that they relied on. Those relationships were a resource that they relied on uh, to support each other or to, um, you know, get by. Um, and so that, that dynamic is certainly reflected in the sports where, uh, you know, if you, if, if you set your mind to the project that I'm going to bring a team to the city tournament 
and you need nine players for a team, <laughs> you know, who are you going to get? Well, if you, you know, if you're, if your personal background is that, you know, you've been playing uh, pay to play money ball, <laughs> travel ball, uh, you can, you know, look around and pick out the, you know, the elite players in whatever sport from, you know, a tri-state area or whatever. Um, but if you're working, you know, in this sort of grassroots vernacular scale, uh, if you're working with what you've got at home uh, in the community, you know, you might call your brothers, <laughs> you might call mm-hmm. your cousins. Uh, that's that's who you've got. That's who you've got to uh, to work with. And um, and so Some the, of those families were pretty good, though, it seems. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. I mean, yeah, the Acosta family in in uh, Baytown, Texas, is legendary because they were, uh, you know, brothers who were really great on the softball field. Um, and they also played a lot of others. They played other sports. They played football and um and uh, and it, there's something exciting about that for uh, from a community standpoint too, because I think when you're when we're talking about these kind of uh, barrioized communities, barrio communities which are really um, you know uh, they're tight knit out of necessity and out of out of history, um, but your family name can can really place you in very specific ways. Now this is why I say that the Newton tournament you know, requires uh, birth certificates on paper. But in effect, nobody really has to bring their birth certificates because everybody knows who you are. They know whose nephew you are. They know who you're married to or, you know, <laughs> who your grandparents were or something like that. Yeah, I, and I, so I, I liked that a couple of the players, other people thought were Anglos. It was like, no, no, that's somebody's cousin, you know. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But yeah, you can imagine when, you know, if, if there's, a, if a community really kind of gets behind a team and you see, you've got like four brothers on the team who are, who are, you know, doing great things on the field and, and bringing pride to your community. That's, that's just another level of excitement um, because it's not just, uh, you know, some individual players who are, uh, who you're cheering for, but this, this whole family, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very dramatic kind of thing. And that, you know, one of the teams that um, was just very prominent in Kansas still is, uh, can the Kansas city Indios, uh, you know, that, that, that team is basically an extended family. Uh, it's a very large extended family, but there, uh, there's so much, um, uh, cross reference that when you talk about Kansas city softball, you know, there's, there are four or five teams that, that you might talk about, but, uh, the Indios are one of them. And when you talk about the Kansas city Indios, you know, you're talking about the Garcia family, um, you know, just layers and layers of, of resonance there in terms of specific histories and, um, uh, you know, close knit social relations. Um, and you know, all of this is the, the degree to which all of this is visible to somebody who's watching the game, depends on how involved in the community you are. Uh, that's kind of one of the, one of the amazing things about it too, that, you know, you can show up at any of these tournaments, anybody who likes sports can show up at any of these tournaments and have a good time. Um, and it's a festive environment. Like you said, there's good food. There's often music playing. The sport is great. The, the competition and the drama and the games are great. But if you also know a little bit about the people who are playing, and if you know a little bit about, where they're coming from and who their relatives are, it just takes on a whole new dimension. And you can, um, you can probably imagine uh, how much meaning there is there uh, for the, for the communities that host these things. Ben, it was a pleasure to talk to you about this book. The final question we always ask our guests on new books uh, in sports is 
what do we have to look forward to from you next? What's your next project? What can we what can we um, look forward to? reading about well it's going to be a little disappointing for the uh, sports list i'm afraid i'm not doing another sports project at this point but i I should say my experience uh with my first book with the lowrider work is that when you when you do a um a very community-based ethnography like this uh it has a long afterlife and so i i fully intend to be writing and presenting on the subject for a while you better be Um, at the 75th i mean how can you (laughs) right but it's also um there are opportunities to maybe mount exhibitions or things like that my colleague gene chavez in kansas city has done some amazing exhibitions and has worked with the smithsonian to make sure that this story gets told but there are also uh so many people just sitting on collections of material from this history um and so i'll be looking for opportunities to kind of support um you know people who want to preserve and maintain all of that memory um but i don't think i'm going to launch a new ethnographic project in that area and in fact right now i'm kind of uh, i'm kind of getting involved in critical university studies and sort of taking an ethnographic look at at my world of work and what's going on with our universities um and uh uh, we'll we'll see where that takes me, um, but trying to understand, you know, I'm kind of like a fish trying to understand the, uh, the water, the water yeah. that I'm swimming in right yeah. now. But uh, that pitch will be more fun, that's for sure. <laughs> well, but it's you know there, there's really um, a, a lot of commonality I think because it's um, you know ethnography is all about stepping out of um, the way that you're uh, accustomed to thinking of things and, and understanding things and really trying to um, get your head around another way. Um, and so I'm going to be trying to do that uh, within, uh, uh, as, I, as I try to figure out how universities work. <laughs> I've always had sort of one foot out of it. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, coming back to the, uh, to the fast pitch work, there's a, there's still so much more to be done. And so I, I certainly hope to, uh, be able to support, um, you know, scholars who want to, who want to pick up the ball and take it, uh, take it even deeper than I have. Well, that's good for the future as well of, of the universities. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks so much, Ben. We have been speaking with Ben Chapel, who is a professor of American studies at the university of Kansas. And we've been talking about this, his latest book, Mexican American fast pitch, Identity at Play in Vernacular Sport, out from Stanford University Press. Um, it's, a, as I said before, uh, just a fascinating read, um, intellectually rigorous, but also full of rich, kind of thick, descriptive details of these uh, fast-pitch tournaments, which made my mouth water and, and me uh, go, to the, go to YouTube to try to catch clips as well. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me, Ben. Thanks, Keith. I really appreciate the opportunity. And you have been listening to the uh, New Books in Sports uh, channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone coming to you live from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for listening.